what I want you to do for just a moment is I want you to just imagine that you are at the very end of your life, that you're laying there on your deathbed and you're surrounded by all of your loved ones. And I want you to think about that moment. You're getting ready to step into eternity. And in that moment, what would be the most important thing to you in that moment? Yeah, I want you to think about it. Just, just hold on to that. Most would say that they would, when they get to the end of their life, they want to be able to look back and at least just say, hey, I lived a good life. And so what's the question here is, what is the good life? Is it what you did with your life? Can you look back there in, the, in that moment and say, I lived a good life because I left my legacy or I made my mark on mankind? Or, you know, I lived a, a good life, one filled with experiences and adventure, or I lived a life filled with accomplishment. I, I climbed the corporate ladder. I, I did all the things that I set out to do. And so the question is, is what really, how do we define what the good life really is? You know, some of the greatest minds in all of human history has been debating this uh, for really hundreds, if not maybe thousands of years. Uh, the philosopher Socrates, he says that the good life, he defined it this way, the good life was a, a moral life, meaning that we could say someone lived well if, uh, if they were a person that was courageous and honest and trustworthy and they were kind and they were selfless and, you know, they... they, they just lived a principled life, a good moral life. Uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, Epicurus said the good life was a pleasurable life. So in whichever way that you individually defined what pleasure is, that's what you should pursue in this life. And then there was Aristotle. He said the good life was a fulfilled life. And he went on to define that, that a fulfilled life is when you balance happiness, the pursuit of happiness, with virtues. And so being able to balance those correctly. But you know, even the Apostle Paul, even the Apostle Paul, he talks about the good life. Look here at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And right here in verse 28, we see this wonderful promise that God's going to, uh, for those that follow God, that God will give those who follow him a good life. He promises that he's in some miraculous way, he's going to take the good, the bad, and the ugly of your life and, and somehow work it all to where you have a good life. He's going to work it out for our good, right? That's what the verse says. And I want you to just think about this for a moment. Just ponder this. That the creator who created you and created me and created all things desires that you and I have a good life. Now, you may be thinking, Tim, that sounds a little prosperity gospel there. Uh, like, Tim, like, what, what do you mean? Like, God just wants us to have a, a good life. And so that is kind of the question is, is how are we defining what the good life is? And see, when we think about the good life, we tend to only think about this life, don't we? And see, we, we, when we do this, we forget the universal truth 
And this is true whether you follow Jesus or not. The reality is that everyone lives forever somewhere, don't we? That, that the Bible tells us that there is life after death. That this life that we live in right now is not all there is. And I, I think it's easy for us to get, uh, it, um, to get caught up in thinking about life being only this life that we're living now. And I think one of the reasons why is when we start thinking about eternity and we start thinking about life beyond this life, um, it, it really starts to hurt our minds, doesn't it? Have you ever stopped to just think about eternity? I mean, if you really sit there and think about it, you, you get to this point where your, your brain starts to hurt like you just drank a milkshake too fast, right? Like, like your, your, your mind just starts to twist and it turns in on itself and you're like, ah, I just can't think about it. I think another reason is, is because we are humans and we um, judge things based upon our own human experiences. And the reality is if we're on this side of the grave, we've never experienced what life is like on the other side of the grave. The only thing that we know about that is what scripture tells us or maybe what we've learned from Hollywood or through folklore or things like that. And so we don't have any true, real experience about what life is on the other side of the grave. And so it's hard for us to even just imagine what that might be. I think another reason sometimes is because we tend to read scripture out of context. And I think that's what we do a lot here with Romans 8.28. Now, Romans 8.28 is what we like to call one of those coffee mug Bible verses, right? It's one of those uh, Bible verses that we like to plaster on a plaque or a coffee mug and sell at the Christian bookstore. And I'm not saying that that is a bad thing in and of itself, um, but a lot of popular verses within Scripture are, are put on coffee mugs and they're ripped out of context And we greatly misunderstand what this verse is trying to communicate to us. And so when we look at Romans 8.28, we think that this verse is talking about the good life in this life. And so when Paul says God is working all things together for our good, for those that love him, it's, it's easy to get caught in the trap, even as Christians, to only just think about this life, that, that somehow in this life, no matter how bad things get, God's just going to make it all okay and it's all going to work out and everything's going to be hunky-dory now. But when you read verse 28 and you, you pair it with 29 and 30, you begin to get this big, beautiful picture of what the good life really is. And, and God's idea of a good life is a lot different than maybe your version of a good life, or my version of a good life. But I promise you, it is a much better version than what we could ever imagine. Now, you may be saying, like, well, Tim, you know, wouldn't I know what's best for me? Wouldn't I know what a good life is? I mean, like, like isn't, aren't I the judge to decide, like, what a good life means uh, for me in my life? And I would say, no, not really. It's kind of like a two-year-old trying to decide uh, what the good life is for them. So when my children were two, the good life for them was um, waking up in the morning and eating ice cream for breakfast and binge-watching uh, Disney Channel all day and then not taking a bath and staying up late. To them, that was their whole view of life, and to them, that was the good life. But see, their perspective of what life really was is limited just like ours is too. Look what uh, C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says, we are half-hearted creatures. 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. And all we can see sometimes is this life. And, and, because we, and it's difficult for us because we can't imagine all the beautiful, wonderful treasures that Jesus has for us. And so God has offered us something far better in terms of what a good life is is. So what we're going to do in our text today is we're going to look at this text and we're going to see what it really looks like to have the good life. Now I want you to know this. Our text today is meant to be encouraging. It is meant to be uplifting. So I want you to just sit there and just have the, the word of God just pour over you. And my hope and my prayer is that each and every one of you walk out of here encouraged by the plan that God has for your life. So let's dive in and look here at verse, uh, starting in verse 28. We'll go back. And it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now these two verses, verses 29 and 30, is what is commonly known as, as the golden chain of salvation. Now who in here would like to have a golden chain? Like me, everybody would, right? It's made out of this precious metal that's rare. And I want you to see that God has fashioned this beautiful golden chain and he is giving it to us. And this golden chain is this beautiful gift that God is giving to us. And it symbolizes this good life that God has offered to us. Now in this golden chain, there are five golden links. And these links are made each by the hands of God, and each link represents an aspect of the good life that God is offering and giving to you. So as we go through this, this morning, we're just going to look at these five golden links of this good life that God is offering to you in this golden chain of salvation. Now, I want you to notice something about these two verses, though. Right here, we see God's plan for giving us the good life. But I want you to notice one thing, and it's really important that you grab hold of this, that this is God's plan, not our plan. That nowhere in this text, if you read 28, 29, and 30, nowhere in this text do you or I appear of having anything to do with what God is doing. Now, here's the good news in all of this. Because we have nothing to do with it, we can't mess it up. That's, that's good news. And so some of you may be here this morning and you're fearful that like, man, I have messed up so royally bad that I've ruined God's plan or I've ruined the gift that he's given me. And, and let me just say this morning that you haven't, that you haven't ruined anything because you had nothing to do with it in the first place. All right. So what is the good life? 
Look at verse 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew. So the good life begins when God knows you. The first link in this golden chain is foreknowledge. That God, by his foreknowledge, placed his love upon you. Rest in that. Sit with that. Let that wash over you this morning. Don't be so quick to just push beyond the fact that God foreknew you and placed his love upon you. Now, I want to stop right here for just a moment. I want to talk about what this word God foreknew, this word foreknowledge is. Now, when we look at Scripture, we know that God knows all things, right? Like, he, like everything that has ever happened, everything that will happen, everything that has currently happened, God knows all things. So a common view, and just because it's common doesn't mean it's correct, but a common view of this verse means that God, in his omniscience, looked down the eternity uh, of, of time, and he knew every person that would choose him. Every person that would say yes to him, every person that would say the sinner's prayer, and based upon that human choice, God would then choose them. But remember, this is God's plan, not our plan. He's not saying that God is so omniscient that uh, he saw that one day that you would repent and believe, and based upon that choice that you would choose him. Um, it doesn't mean this at all. See, the word foreknowledge means for, which means before, and knowledge, which means it's, it's kind of to know. But whenever you see the word knowledge in Scripture and it's tied to relationship, it's not talking about information. It's talking about personals. It's the idea that is to convey a, a relationship of intimacy and love. That when God foreknew you, he knew you specifically and uniquely, and personally. See, this word knowledge here, when it's referred to in the idea of a relationship, we look back at Genesis chapter 4, when it says Adam knew his wife, Eve. Now, it doesn't mean that Adam went up to Eve and said, Hi, I'm Adam. I guess we're a husband and wife now. And uh, I guess we should get to know one another for a little bit. And he's, I'm six foot two and I have brown hair and uh, I'm a Sagittarius and I like long walks on the beach. No, it, they, they weren't just exchanging information. What the Bible talks about in this context is this idea that Adam knew his wife in the same way husbands and wives know each other. Are we getting that right? Okay, um, and, and so there's this idea that is communicating this intimacy about their relationship. And so this word foreknowledge is communicating that same idea that before the foundations of the world, there is an intimacy in the relationship that God knew about you specifically. So God's foreknowledge of you is always personal not just informational. That this love that he has for you, this foreknowledge was always unique and specific and personal about you. And see, God didn't love us because we chose him. See, First John says that we love because he first loved us. It doesn't say we lo he loves because we loved him first. No, it says we love because he first loved us. God chose us, and we didn't do anything to influence God in any way. We didn't. It's not like he, he said, oh, man, there's an intelligent one. Let me choose them. 
or there's a good looking one, let me choose them. Oh, I've never seen one like that before. Let me put them on my team. No, it wasn't because of anything that you did. God didn't look down and he, he, he saw you. He knew you. He knew every sin that you would commit. He knew every choice that you would make. He knew every choice you wouldn't make. He knew every time that you would reject him and turn away from him. He knew everything about you and he still chose to love you. So let's not forget that maybe God thought we were special and wonderful. No, the Bible says that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And if we know anything about Scripture, God never chooses the best of the best, doesn't he? He always chooses the worst of the worst. So, hey, you're the worst. <laughs> that, that's, what, that's what our Bibles say, right? But God, somewhere in eternity past, knew you and said, I love you and I choose you. See, Ephesians 1.4 says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before he spoke anything into existence, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the first link. Let's take a look at the second one. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God foreknew us and then he predestined us. So he, God knew us, he set his love upon us, and now he's got to figure out what is he going to do with us? And so when you hear the word uh, predestined, I want you to think just predetermined. And it's kind of like the most simplest way I, I can convey uh, this, this theological concept is that God loves you, he chooses you, and then he predetermines what he's going to do with you. Um, he's like, I got them, now what am I going to do with them? Like, I'm stuck with them, here we are, what are we going to do? Look at verse 29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what are the next words? To be conformed to the image of his son. So if you're following Christ this morning, this verse shows us that God has predecided that you and I are going to be conformed into the image of his son. And so when God decides something, it's going to happen. Like you don't have to worry about, am I ever going to look like Jesus? It's already been predecided that you will, that, that you're going to have eternal life, that you're going to be a co-heir with Jesus. He is predecided, and that choice will not fail. He's predetermined that he will not reject you or abandon you or disown you. He's decided that you're going to be like Jesus. Now, this does not mean that you're going to be a God like Jesus. This doesn't mean that you're going to uh, one day uh, uh, be a God. It said you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, the image of the Son of God. And so what does this mean? Well, if you're looking in a mirror and you see the reflection, that, that reflection looks just like you, doesn't it? It has all your features and your characteristics. If you look, you look in the mirror... It's like, that's me. But it's not you, it's just the reflection. 
And so the same way that we're going to be conformed to the image of God, we're not going to be God, but we're going to um, have his characteristics of what it looks like to be a son of God. So what does this mean? It means that sometimes when someone hurts you, your first instinct isn't going to be to respond with anger and bitterness. Your first instinct is going to be to respond with love and forgiveness and kindness. It means that when, when life gets difficult, your first instinct isn't going to, to turn to your self-destructive coping patterns. It means you're going to run to your father instead. It means that your first instinct is always going to be one that is pleasing and honoring to God. Imagine for a second if your flesh was out of the way. Have you thought about that? Like if your selfishness wasn't there anymore. You ever thought about be like if like your toxic guilt and your toxic shame wasn't there anymore? Do you ever thought like what it would be like to live a stress-free life if the stress of your life just wasn't there? Like that'll bend your mind a little bit to wake up in the morning completely free of stress. Do you ever think about like what it might be that your first response if someone hurts you and your first impulse is not anger and bitterness, but forgiveness and to seek the good of another. That's what it'll be like. And that's what we get to look forward to. You know, sometimes we wonder in our lives what God is up to. We face circumstances and we go through situations and we look at it and we're like, where are you at in this, Lord? I can't see it. I don't know what you're up to. I, I don't even know how this is going to be conforming me to anything. Uh, it just seems like all this is causing me is hurt and pain and suffering, and I just can't see what is going on. But I promise you, even in that moment, God is working to conform you into the image of his son. There's an old hymn that says this. It says, when you can't trace his hand, when you don't see his plan." When you don't understand, trust his heart. What is God's heart? It's a heart that loves you, that cares about you, and that desires you to be conformed into the image of his son. So let's look at this next chain. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. God calls us. What does it mean that God calls us? This calling is the very first time the gospel begins to penetrate your cold, dead heart. And for the very first time, you hear the whispers of the Holy Spirit drawing you to Christ. I want you to think just for a moment. Think back to that moment when Jesus saved you. Do you remember that moment? Could you say anything other than yes? See, in that moment, for some of you, you can remember the exact day, the exact moment, the exact minute that Jesus saved you. Praise be to God that you remember that. Some of you, um, there was a gradual awakening to the gospel. You can't really point to a specific date or a specific time. And so you were just kind of going along and there's this gradual awakening. And then you just kind of realize one day, oh, I guess I'm following Jesus now. All right, all right, let's go. Uh, and, and praise be to God for that. 
And so just because you had a gradual awakening to uh, God's calling doesn't mean that you don't remember a specific day and time doesn't mean that you were any less saved. But the reality is, is that God saves us. He calls us. And this is this beautiful thing. One of the best things about being a pastor is that we uh, get to see how God calls people in that moment. We get to see God in that moment calling people to himself. We get to see people following Jesus. And here's why. Because God does this in so many different ways and in different places. God sometimes saves people through their intellect. That they just look at the, the intellectual arguments for, uh, for God and for the Bible and for Jesus and say, and so it just makes sense to them. So God awakens it through that. God saves people through tragedy. Like we, we've gone through difficult uh, circumstances in life and, and you know, we, we find ourselves at the end of our ropes and we have nowhere else to turn but to, to God. Some people are saved through relationships. So many times we see it here of like spouses coming to know Jesus because their spouse was faithful uh, in, in coming and reading and just being a Christ follower. And they say, you know, I want what they have. Do you know God saves people through dreams sometimes? Do you know uh, there is a record number of Muslims in the Middle East that are being saved through dreams? It's a documented uh, reality that uh, with Iraq and Iran and some places in the Middle East, it is impossible for missionaries to be able to go in there and get into these places and, and share the gospel. And so imagine like going to bed a Muslim and then waking up the next morning a Christ follower because, you, because Jesus came to you and appeared to you in a dream. And the reality is, is we can go on and on about all the different ways and all the different places and how God calls us. But I want you to hear this. No matter the method that is being used to reach someone with the gospel, the method of reaching people with the gospel is always secondary to the proclamation of the gospel. That is the primary means, that we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the good news of Jesus. And this is the primary way in which God saves. It has nothing to do really with our method. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Jesus called you and he said, You are mine. This wasn't just some general call to see who would respond. This was specific to you. Remember how Jesus in the New Testament, he, he called his disciples by name, one by one, and they followed him. And he says, Adric, come and follow me. Jerry, come and follow me. John, Philip, come, follow me. Annalise, come and follow me. He knows us and he's called us by name to come and follow him. Let's look at this next link. Verse 30, he says, And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this word justified here 
I love this. We hear this word a lot, and this is um, kind of a, a uniquely Christian word, but we hear this so much and so often as Christians, I think we tend to gloss over it. And I don't want to do that this morning, but because I, I think if we truly, really got this, we wouldn't suffer with guilt and shame anymore. Like if we truly understood that we have been justified before God, that this would be life-changing for us. And so it's this idea that in that moment of conversion, when Jesus calls you, he calls you to himself, and in that moment, he justifies you. And, that, and that when that justification happens, there's two simultaneous things that are happening in that moment. The first thing that is happening is that I, was like, I thought that was me. <laughs> the first thing that is happening is that Jesus calls us to himself, and in that moment, he takes all of your sin from you, past, present, and future. So he justifies it. It's just as if you had never sinned. So he takes away all of your sin. And at the same exact time of him taking your sin, he gives you his perfect record of righteousness. And so there's this exchange. He gets our sin. We, gets his, we get his righteousness. So it's justified, never sinned, and it's just if I had always obeyed. And I pray that we truly get to understand that this morning. Because because of that, God sees us as holy and righteous and spotless. When he looks at you, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see, uh, well, he doesn't see your sin. He has removed it as far as the east is from the west. Amen. Now, there are some of you here this morning who have spent years beating yourself up over past sins. And so let me ask you this morning, why are you remembering it? Because God sure doesn't. So you, you, you are free to, to release that, to let that go, and to walk out of here in, in the freedom that God has given you. And so if we truly got this, if we truly grasp this, I believe it would be life-changing for us. And finally, this final link in this golden chain. Look at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You and I are going to be glorified. Now, I want you to stop and wait just for a moment. Has our glorification happened yet? No, it has not. So question then, why is Paul talking about this in the past tense, as if it's already happened. You see that, right? He's, he's talking like glorified. It hasn't happened yet, so he's, but he's talking about it in the past tense. Why is that? I believe the reason why Paul is using this, this term glorified in the past tense is because he is so certain of the reality that one day you and I will be glorified that it's okay for him to talk about as if it's already a past reality for us. That's how certain our glorification is. It's not a maybe, it's not a probably, it's not a hope so. It is a reality that you and I, because of this beautiful gift of this golden change, we will be glorified. 
So what does glorification mean? Glorification is God's final removal of sin and the effects of sin in every aspect of creation and life. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally. Now there are a few aspects of glorification I want to talk about this morning. So when we talk about glorification, one aspect of glorification is the idea of eradication. That sin and the effects of sin will completely be eradicated from your life, from my life, from our lives. So instead of being tempted to sin, our only inclination will be to do good. Instead of being mortals who are burdened with a sinful nature, we will be changed into holy immortals with this direct, unhindered access to our Savior. So sin will be eradicated at glorification. Reunification. We will be in that moment in the presence of Christ. Think about that for just a moment. And we are in the presence of Christ now, spiritually. The Holy Spirit here, and he's dwelling with us. But just think about that moment when you get to see your Savior face to face. And I think the beautiful thing about this, too, is not only will we get to see our Savior face to face, we'll get to see our loved ones face to face. As real as you and I are standing here, we will be with our Savior and with our loved ones. And I tell you what, there's been some loved ones over the years that have gone on before us that I cannot wait to see again. I can't wait to see Richard. I can't wait to see Gilbert. And I cannot wait to see Kiana. I cannot wait to see my grandma, my papa, my nanny, my meemaw. I can't wait to see them all. <laughs> Let that sit with you for just a moment. Lastly, glorification means beautification. We're going to receive glorified bodies. So instead of dealing with receding hairlines and growing waistlines, <laughs> we're going to have bodies that don't creak and crack and hurt themselves when they're sleeping. <laughs> our bodies will know no death they will know no sickness they will know no deformities our bodies will be as God originally intended them to be now I want you to imagine for a moment that you're at the end of your life. That you're on your deathbed and that you're surrounded by your loved ones. And you are just breaths away from stepping into eternity. Now let me ask you, what is the good life? Is it a life of adventure and experience? I wish I'd have filed one more TPS report. I wish I would have played one more level on Duck Hunt or Mario Brothers. Or... 
I wish I would have uh, uh, acquired a few more dollars in my bank accounts. Or is the good life a life in which you were known by God, loved by God, conformed into the image of his son, justified and moments away from being glorified? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news this morning. Thank you for this this unbelievable gift of this golden chain in which you foreknew us, in which you determined that we would be like your son Jesus. Thank you, Father, for taking away our sin and giving us your son's righteousness. And Father, we stand here before you today and we just hope We rest in the hope that one day that we will be glorified, that we'll be fully reunited with you and with our loved ones. So, Father, thank you for this gift. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.